Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by the one and only Angelina Stanford <laughs> and the inimitable Tim McIntosh. I love this. I intros. love this. Wow. I got to mix See, it up. It's my goal to get you putting like five, six adjectives before my name. Like, you know, like a good 15 minute intro just working up to my name. A- <laughs> Angelina, we have. I'll, I'll submit some suggestions. <laughs> feel free, but we have already established via this podcast that I'm a fan of Cormac McCarthy and Ernest Hemingway, and therefore I'm going to limit the number of adjectives that I use in describing anything, let alone you. So. Um, well done. Well done. Oh, minimalist. Okay, fine. <laughs> So we are here to talk for one, well, not one final time about this book, but one final time about the chapters in the book. The point is, we don't have a lot of time left to talk about Murder Must Advertise, so we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about through chapter Dude, 21. how many cups of coffee did you have today? I just feel like we are getting David Kern, you know, like, revved up. Super <laughs> I, David. I never drink any coffee whatsoever, so I'm not going to blame it on that. Um, Angelina David is a um, he's a method actor and to kind of get in like to get in line with murder must advertises cocaine trafficking. David has maybe snorted a little bit of the white ghost. The things he does for verisimilitude. When, to quote, right. To quote exactly. Peter, right. Well done. Well done. I was going as you were saying that I'm a method actor. I was ironically nodding my head profusely. Um, <laughs> but then once you got to the last part of that, I stopped nodding my head. <laughs> um, I, uh, I should no. edit this out. Hey, I was told uh, Angelina was like David doesn't have enough energy, so <laughs> I figure I, should, I, I figure I'd bring the opposite. That. What are you talking <laughs> about? So not say that. Anyway, we are we are here to to talk about Murder Must Advertise through Chapter Twenty One, and then as we decided last week, we will take listener questions, and we're going to talk about. Just talk about questions next week. We'll answer your questions and all that. I've seen a couple. I'm feeling like I should take that back. The, the questions people are putting on the Facebook page are hard. I want like some softball. Give me some t-ball questions. Oh, don't like, worry. I want you to, the, the cricket match where the old guy comes up and just rolls the ball to the wicket. Give me that. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> We're only going to answer the easy ones anyway. So. Okay. Um, okay. We get to I mo- might submit a few of my own under <laughs> some fake names. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Mary Whimsy Sayers asks <laughs> so, <laughs> Flannery Smith wants to know <laughs> so, so if you have questions for Flannery Smith or Angelina Whimsy or whatever her name is then feel free to post those on Facebook or send them to me via email if you're going to post them on Facebook please use the hashtag uh, Close Reads Q&A so we can easily kind of track all of them instead of having to hunt them down through thread after thread of uh, conversation because let me tell you the conversations and, on that Facebook page are a bit of a rabbit hole a very interesting rabbit hole but a rabbit hole nonetheless man, what I think that we have actually created the most interesting place in the in the interweb universe no I didn't say it the wasn't things, that I just said that man, you could get lost you could get lost no in no I, I knew that wasn't a criticism I'm just like man you know I can either do my reading for the week or I can go on the Facebook page <laughs> <laughs> there you go Tim what were you going to say what was I going to say? Golly, it was really profound. Just <laughs> trust me. It was really profound. As usual. As <laughs> normal. As usual, it was very interesting. Um, well, we are here to talk about the resolution to this book, the sad resolution to this uh... mystery. 
Uh, I have three questions that I want to cover in this podcast. I want to get your opinions on three questions, and then I'm sure we'll hear from our listeners as well. Um, before we do, I want to just, as we just mentioned a minute ago, um, we do have a Facebook page, the Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group. Uh, if you head over to Facebook and put that in the search, you'll find that. Join us over there. The conversation is um, rousing. It's in, it's really fun. Um, there is a lot of really interesting things being said on there. I agree with maybe you know, some of it, uh, some of it, I don't, but that's the beauty of it. Right. Tim, how much do you think you agree with on there? Well, I, I should not, I really dip in and out because you're right. It's a rabbit hole and I cannot go down the rabbit hole. I just can't go down the rabbit hole. Claustrophobic. So I'm claustrophobic. No, I will, I will, I will feel myself getting invested (laughs) in these questions and I'll want to like invest an hour. Replying I know, right? They're not. They're not. Like, you can't like, be like, oh, can't yeah, do it. right on, right? Like, like you have to write a dissertation to respond to Absolutely. some of these questions, right? <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's really fun. I, I'm being facetious when I say uh, that I disagree with um, a lot of it. I mean, I do disagree with some of it, but that's the point. Oh, you just like stirring up the hornet's nest. My my all time favorite <laughs> comment that anyone ever wrote on the Facebook page is when you wrote, David. This is a lot of fun. By the way, what are we talking about? <laughs> Yeah, it kind of got off. I mean, it was like vaguely on point, but I wasn't really sure exactly what the argument we were making. We kind of were all agreeing on a separate topic at that point. Um, But yeah, join us over there. It's really fun. And then, of course, um, if you have not, you know, if you want to just subscribe to Close Reads on iTunes or Stitcher or Podcast Addict or wherever you listen, feel free to find just the Close Reads feed and subscribe there as well. Um, obviously we would love to have you listening to all of our shows on this network, as I've said before, but you know, that feed is there for you. If you just want to subscribe to close reads, um, with that, let's talk about this book. Let's talk about these chapters. Okay. What are your three questions? I'm not telling you. So all. Like, three, I'm not going to tell you all oh, three of them what? ahead of time. I was going to write them down. And then when Tim was talking, I was going to be thinking. Okay. So Tim, Tim, <laughs> before we started here, Tim started to say he wanted to talk about who we thought it could have been. So, my question is, you know, we talked last week about Tallboy. I think I even called it a smoking gun. I don't know. I don't know if that actually made the recording, um, but I think I said that in our conversation. And we were like, well, it's probably not him because it seems too obvious. So my question is, who else could it have been besides Tallboy? Who else did you guys su- suspect? I suspected Diane. And then I found out. Oh, she couldn't because she, well, I, I, we're just, this is all, this is a show of spoilers, right? I don't need to say spoiler alert. Yeah, oh, no. this is the last episode. Spoil away. Yeah. yeah spoil away. I thought it was, I thought it was like somehow Diana was going to be, if not, I don't know that she would have directly committed the murder, but I thought that she would be responsible somehow for committing the murder. But we found out, no, she dies in the, what, the third to the last chapter so. Wasn't her? I was way off. I mean, I guess she still could have committed the murder earlier and before the book started. I just, I didn't think that she. It seemed to be like it needed to be somebody inside the building, and I thought that she was working in cahoots with somebody ah. inside the building. Okay, I, see I didn't think. That. I just thought she's not. You gonna thought be using she was more of a mastermind. Shot. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Angelina. Who did you think, Angelina? I. I was so unsure because it seemed to me she was really pointing it at Tallboy. So mm. she law and ordered us there at the end. But, but 
she, I mean, she did some interesting things with it. So she, she had lots of subplots going on, and right. So Tollboy was just one component in, in a much larger picture that he didn't even understand. So the case sort of took on larger proportions. And so I don't, I don't think that the story really revolved around who killed Victor Dean as much as unraveling this other larger mystery. Mm. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, it became, it became much more about uh, the drug trade and all that, and like the, the right, murder, right. He murder stumbled onto some huge thing, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Which and they kind of say that, right? Like, doesn't Parker kind of tell him, you know, we're more interested in like we don't really care if we catch the the murderer, or I guess uh, Whimsy told Tallboy that they kind of knew earlier who it was, and they kind of left him floating until they could get the whole crew. So right, they, like when they, they had wanted their, the head honcho. Yeah, when they had their little meeting at the end and before Tallboy went off. Right. Um, I mean, honestly, at the beginning, she threw suspicion on Willis, but I never bought that. Mm-hmm. And then she threw a whole lot of suspicion on Tallboy, and then that, of course, never went away. And so I think the question then became, what is his role in all this? Why did why would he have killed Victor Dean? You know, what is what what everything was unraveling around Tallboy? That was clear. Um, yeah. And so it really it was a matter of trying to trying to just piece it together. Why? Why is he acting this way? Why is what is unraveling exactly? Why did he lose his mind over that ad being changed? You know, it strikes et cetera, et cetera. It strikes me that we've talked a lot about how this book is a, a is about a lot more than the who done it, right? Like the it's, yes. it's about it's about advertising and the nature of it. It's about um consumerism. It's about nihilism in that time, you know, the way people were experiencing the world at that time. All all this kind of stuff we've talked about over the last four or five episodes or whatever um and like the under kind of underlining the uh, the underlying idea behind all that is this sense of chaos right um yes. and despair and it, and it strikes me that more than who committed the murder what's at stake is as we said the drug trade and there's like this sense of chaos the kind of underpinning that too and so like they it seems like they mirror each other in a way the- Absolutely. And even even the way the tall boy thing was resolved, right, when he's telling Whimsy how it is he got sucked into that, that was a really interesting speech, right? Like, mm-hmm. I take this job and I'm not getting paid that much, but it's safe and I'm okay. And then I get married and I got a kid and there's furniture to buy and bills to pay and a mortgage and I can't stop working long enough to go look for a new job. And so, like, there was this very sort of chaotic, you know, tsunami that just kind of washes over him and he's just caught up in this thing which I thought fit in with so many of the themes of advertising and selling a life to people who can't really afford it. And Tallboy ends up making some very bad decisions because he's desperate for money. Yeah, you know, like he's he's just he's essentially a decent guy. He's weak, but he's decent, and he just gets caught up in this thing. Yeah, let's let's turn to pet chapter twenty because I want to actually read a passage here because it it's it strikes me as interesting. I just use that phrase again. You to, did, David, but now out. I have the appropriate facial expression to go with it, and that uh, makes all the difference. <laughs> um, it's need, whimsical. <laughs> I, need, I, I wrote underneath it, I, I was thinking as I was reading about our discussion of Marxism, right? And so as I'm reading, I'm, I, I'm thinking about that, and I wrote something about how his little speech is almost a, in defense of the middle class, right? And then in the end, we yeah. have, we have yeah. like, whimsy ends up feeling sympathy for him, right? He, yeah. he says, I'm not, I don't feel like celebrating right now after Tallboy goes off. But I'd love to mm-hmm, read the passage mm-hmm. here. So it, it, it begins with, um, well... Hard, you don't know. Yeah, oh, yeah exactly. Yes. Yep, so um, Braden says, no, it would be rather hard, I should think. 
Wait, well, because um, uh, Tallboy says, well, I hadn't the courage to chuck it. Braden says, no, it would be rather hard, I should think. And then, Tim, can you pick it up there reading um, reading what Tallboy says there, that, that next paragraph? Sure. Hard? You don't know, Braden, uh, whimsy. You don't know what it means to be stuck for money. They don't pay any too well at PIMS, and there are heaps of fellows who want to get out and find something better, but they daren't. PIMS is safe. They're kind and decent, and they don't sack you if they can help it, but you live up to your income, and you simply daren't cut loose. The competition is so keen, and if you marry and start paying for your house and furniture, and you must keep up the installments, and you can't collect the capital to sit around for a month or two while you look for a new job, You've got to keep going, and it breaks your heart, and it takes all the stuffing out of you. So I went on. Of course, I kept hoping that I might be able to save money and get out of it, but my wife fell ill, one thing and another, and I was spending every penny of my salary and Smith's money on top of it. And then, somehow, that little devil Dean got hold of it. God knows how. So – I mean, again, I, what I wrote in the margin is in defense of the middle class. It's it's almost like a defense of the proletariat, right? Um, yeah, right. And like, how how many people among us can can sympathize with that idea of it just breaks your heart, right? And it's this vicious cycle. It's like the advertisers. It harkens back to what they were saying about trying to convince the women to to be more serious about their smoking, right? Because they're it's this vicious cycle that goes on, and you get sucked into it. And the only way you can get out is by well in his case he feels like the only way he can get out of it is by committing a crime right um yeah so do you think that given all of this this is my second question given all this that we know about Tallboy, given his sympathies for him given the situation that Tallboy is in do you think that whimsy should have let Tallboy just leave the way he did do you think that's what he should have done you know, I really spent a lot of time thinking about that last night after I read this. You know, was this justice? And that, mm. Tim, you want to go? You want to? You want to go first? No. Or? no, I want to hear what you have to say. Um, because my first thought was no, it wasn't. But then, but then I started thinking. Well, okay, so what? On, you're, on it, multiple. So, all right, okay. okay in your first right. thought, then, what was justice? When you said no, it wasn't. My first thought was no, it wasn't justice. Would my have... first thought was that he needed to go turn himself into the police. That that you know there are proper channels for this, okay. right? Okay. Um. But then, as I reflected more on like the deeper themes of the book of, of Parker saying, uh, essentially, we're not interested in the middleman. We're trying to get the we're trying to get the top dog, right? So there was there was that element, and then there was the element really that there's the sense that Victor Dean is the worst person here, right? Um. And and yeah, isn't because that interesting. Yeah, because Tallboy doesn't re- like he knows something shady is going on when he takes this money, but he's he's deceiving himself. But he certainly has no idea that he's part of a huge drug plot, right? But Victor Dean knows. He knows exactly what this is, and he's trying to exploit it, and he's trying to exploit Tallboy, um, which of course doesn't justify murder. But in the, I felt like there was this sense of anybody who plays this game, this is the end that they come to, right? This is this is a dangerous game. This is a dangerous world. People don't get sucked into this world and come out okay, right? And but Tallboy was essentially decent, but weak. And so in the end, Whimsy gives him a chance to do something honorable by saving his family from this disgrace, mm. right? Just by just by letting the inevitable thing that was going to happen happen, because anybody who plays this game is going to end up dead. 
So then, so then you think he's he did the right thing? Yes, but I think that he is. I think that Whimsy struggles with whether or not that was the right thing, and that's why he can't celebrate at the end. Yeah. Oh, you think that's the reason why? You don't think it's the whole affair that makes him not want to celebrate? You think he's got? He could he could possibly have regrets that he didn't do the right thing with Tallboy. I boy. think he's upset that there was no way out for Tallboy. Yeah, you know? he's he's feeling empathy at least. Like he's at least. Well, he's trying to feel empathy given his financial circumstances are very different. But Right, and it was interesting to me that she Dorothy Sayers ends the book on that same note, right? He goes in there and they're collecting money for a gift for tall boys. For the wreath, right? For the wreath for his yeah. and And then also just for the wedding. Right. And but just instinctively they're like, Can you contribute a couple of pounds and but only if you can and then she catches herself and says, Well, obviously you can and he's like, Yes, I, I have two pounds, it's not a problem. But mm-hmm. you know, she kinda ends it on that same note that he doesn't have those concerns. That really is not he has as much empathy as he can, but that is not the world he lives in. He 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 never is going to feel those kinds of pressures. Even Lady Lady Mary's not, right? I mean Lady Mary is pretending to be an economizing housewife, but she you know, she doesn't really have to be. Right. Yeah. She doesn't really have to be. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And that comes towards the end of the book too. That discuss that whole discussion about, you know, just have her come bring servants in or whatever. So in the end, I guess I was left concluding that it was a satisfying ending to the book, even though I'm left being uncomfortable with what happens to tall boy. And I kind of think that's the point and that Peter Whimsey is also uncomfortable. And it's kind of like a wh- it's just tragic what happens when people get caught up in this. And you think the tragedy of Tallboy is is the circumstances that drove him toward this. It's not that whimsy kind of turned him loose and there was no like legal official legal justice done to him. Is that right, Angelina? Yeah, that's my feeling. I don't think Parker was yeah terribly concerned with it i don't think so either i agree i mean what so i mean if tall boy gets arrested there's no way pim's publicity doesn't come down to and tall boy's wife and child mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so i mean is this yeah. is this kind of the best possible outcome for the most minimal damage i mean i don't know it, it, the book has been so sticky and so chaotic and the ending kind of feels like that too like it's not tidy I mean, the arrests and all that, they happen off screen about characters that we really don't know. Right. Yeah, chaos is a, I used that word earlier and you brought it up again. It really does seem like there's a sense of chaos throughout this book in a lot of different ways. And even the resolution is a little bit, isn't isn't as tidy. I think you just said it's not as tidy as you might suspect in a lot of mystery stories. And I wondered at first. All the loose ends are tied up but the kind of uh, whether or not justice has happened in a broader, like almost a a social or even maybe a cosmic sense, whether or not justice has been done, that seems deliberately uh, left open, even though all of the, all the strings are neatly tied up. This person is accused of this and will be convicted. This person of this and will be convicted, et cetera. Yeah. we, We as readers don't really get the cathartic experience you kind of are looking for. No, it's true. There's a resolution, but I, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's, that's a different kind of book for her. And I, and I wondered for a while if that sort of undid all the things that I said about mystery novels. 
Uh, I don't think that it does because she does give us a resolution and order is restored, um, at least in theory. But I think she's, I think she's dealing with, you know, sometimes on, on this side of the resurrection, resolution is not tidy. And there, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it, it followed. If I mean, it, look, it followed the formula, the liturgy, right? The bad guys are caught. There is an arrest. Um, everything's explained. Everything that was secret has come to light. All you know, everything that you expect to see. Order is restored. We we have the 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 story ending with things back at Pim's publicity. Pim's has been saved. All these people's jobs have been saved. Everything's going to carry on. So you have all of those essential elements, but it it kind of feels like a downer at the end. Whereas usually you have that sense of you know. Good has triumphed at the end of yes. the stories, and, and have I, been right, and and you almost feel like there's it's just how can these wrongs be righted essentially, mm-hmm. right? How how can that tall boy situation be fixed? I mean, at first they suggest suicide, right, and then whimsy gives him another option, which you know I did not remember any of that, <laughs> so that kind of threw me. I'll be honest, mm-hmm. that kind of threw me. But, but, you know, I think I feel the same way about a lot of modern crime movies, right? It's just it's just such a dark, sticky mess, right? And even when you yeah. catch the bad guy, there's another bad guy because they're just one piece of a huge puzzle. Yeah. So I think she tried to resolve it as best as it can be resolved. It's just such a huge mess. And and, and even just with the, the drug situation in our country, it's so many – you know, you read the stories of somebody growing up in an impoverished neighborhood and, you know, what, they're 10 years old and they get offered 20 bucks to deliver a package. And that's a fairly innocent move. And then 20 years later, they're caught up uh-huh. in this thing and they don't know how to get out of it and they can't get right. out of it. And it's just it's all just tragic. Right. And they end up yeah. getting gunned down or whatever. And I mean, there's no real sense of justice there when something like that happens. It's just tragic. And I, I think when I was younger, I used to imagine these um momentous moral choices would face me as an adult and I would either have the strength and faith to make the right choice or I would be flagging and I would and I would and I would wilt under the pressure and I would demonstrate a lack of faith and I would make the wrong choice and so many of the choices that are kind of maybe structural so many of the structural evils in our society or any society are created not because anybody had to make a momentous choice, yes or no. They just, like you were talking about, Angelina, they made a little choice, and that little choice made another small, made a next, the next choice a little bit easier, and then a little bit easier, and a little bit easier, which is not to say there's not responsibility somewhere along the line, but so many structural evils are made by the kind of the accumulation of a bunch of small decisions that reinforce a a system that's corrupt. Right, right. You know, and, and you look at the storyline and you and you can see Tallboy saying, How on earth did I just, you know, a middle class pencil pusher, how did I end up a murderer? Like mm. you can see him asking himself that and really just not knowing, because it's like you said, Tim, I mean, honestly, so many great sins are just like a slow slide into it, right? Yeah. I mean, he never would have just thought to himself, I'm going to kill Victor Dean. It was like just he gets pushed into a corner. He panics. Mm-hmm. Victor's not a very likable guy anyway. And he he does something unthinkable, and he's not terribly smooth about it either. Yeah. And so he beats the trailer. What's that C.S. Lewis quote? Um, 
the the path to hell is a is gradually downhill, soft underfoot. You guys know that quote? Mm-mm. I don't think I know that it's, one. It's, yeah, I don't know where it's from, but I remember it being kind of it might be from Screw Tape Letters. It might be emblazoned on my memory because Screw Tape Letters made such a big impression on me. But yeah, it's a gradual. It's the road to hell is. A gradual decline downhill, soft underfoot, something along those lines. It's a great quote, and it kind of it it touches on this um, issue. When did Tallboy Tallboy made just one little decision, one little decision at the beginning, and that created a little domino effect. And of course, it culminated with him doing the murder, actually taking a murder weapon in his hands, planning it all out. But at that point, he had made all these little incremental decisions along the way that, of course, did not force him to do the act, but it made the act very, uh, a very plausible solution to the horrible, the, the terrible circumstances he had allowed himself to put, be put in. Right, and there's no question that that was a moral choice. It was, it was, a, it was a deliberate choice to kill Victor Dean. But you know, and it's hard to imagine another set of circumstances where he would have made that choice. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, so he does have to, in a sense, pay for it. Right. And he does. But he pays for it in the same sort of I just got caught up in this thing, you know, so he doesn't have a trial and there's not, you know, a pronouncement of guilt. He just he just suffers the natural consequences of the choices he's made, I guess, is the way to look at it, which is actually very like theologically correct. Right. Yeah. That's we bring destruction on ourselves with the bad choices we make and. That's what happens. I mean, it actually kind of reminds me of Theodore Dreiser, right? Like, you know, because he was all about creating these oh, stories yeah. where people don't make deliberate moral choices. They Things just happen, and all of a sudden you're like, how did I end up on the other side of this line? And then, Absolutely. And then you're trying to unravel it. That's such a perfect author to reference here because um, an American tragedy is that story exactly. And isn't his other best-known book? Is Sister it, Carrie. That's the one I was thinking Sister of. Sister Carrie. Mm-hmm. Same, same, same story. Thing. She makes same a series thing. of small incremental decisions that, given the kind of urban circumstances that she's in, all of the little decisions that she make absolutely fit. They make perfect sense. And then at the end of the book, you're like, wait, how did we get here? How did we get here? Right. It reminds me a lot of, as you're speaking, I keep thinking of a couple different Coen Brothers movies, actually, like Fargo. I don't know if you've, either of you have seen oh, that. Yeah, right. I've seen that. Mm-hmm. Right. Where, or there's a, then there was a remake of the TV show, which kind of gets into this even more, but it, you know, he, it's a guy who you'd never think would be capable of that. And then a little bit at a time, he becomes capable of something, doing something terrible, and then he reaps, well, you know, reaps what he sows. Or No Country for Old Men, even. Where the guy, which is also, right. which is of course a Coen Brothers book, I mean a uh, Cormac McCarthy book first, but you know it's people who you wouldn't think would get wrapped up in the kind of things they get wrapped up in, and then you know the chaos takes over. Yeah. And yes, I think. No Country for Old Men. What's interesting about that is you could. So this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. The main character basically finds a bag of cash. Um at the scene of a kind of a grisly, you know, gang showdown in the middle of the desert, he finds it afterwards. There's no real owner. 
if if he forsakes the money, the money will go back into like presumably um, some drug lords out there in the world. So he takes the money, and it's like you could make it. You could argue that he basically. I mean, maybe he should have turned it back into the police. But his that little choice that he made was almost an innocent choice. It was a very it was morally gray at best and it just kept getting it gets more and more and more serious he gets in deeper and deeper and deeper and it's powerful because i for me i could imagine myself in that circumstance very very easily and then at the end of the movie you're like oh my goodness how did i end up here yeah, and the whole time you're watching it, you're th- you're, there's that frustration because you're thinking, what's the right choice? What's the right choice now? How do you get out of this? And there yeah. is no way out of it. Right. There, is, there is no good choice. Um, that, you know, those kinds of stories really just sort of drive home to me the idea of there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? It was like, thank oh, God right. I never oh, stumbled right. upon a bag full of cash because I'm sure I Absolute. would take it, you know? <laughs> And honestly, that's I think that's one of the reasons why you have to be really cautious with modern literature with really young kids, because it is so gray. I I really, you know, fairy tales, clear cut, good and evil choices, I think, are very important for for little kids because they're just they're just not ready to handle. I mean, look at us. We're grown adults and we're all like, thank goodness I'm not in this situation, you know, Mm because this could really, I think really kind of I don't want to say damage a young soul that might be overstating it but could confuse someone when you enter a world where there's no right choice to make right that could be a an overwhelming burden well and yet we, we go ahead we had a at Gutenberg we had a um a couple of lectures given by a woman named Kelly Munger who's finishing her PhD in developmental psychology and she just talks about the the kind of patterns you see among kids, um, and they and they you know there's certain ages where it is all about rule following. It's mm-hmm. all about rule following, and it's a good and healthy like aspect of development. And if you jump over that time of rule following, I mean, who knows what kind of potential damage you could do to the student. Or to the to the young person, and so you're right. This kind of like a real world literature, which much of the modern, much modern novel writing and play writing and short story writing, is wonderful in its realism. I think it's it's absolutely wonderful in its realism. That being said, I agree with Angelina. There's a time in a child's development where um, you you reinforce those ideals and that it pays to be a rule follower. And later you get to the stuff that, which is like the real description of the real world and trying to figure out as adults, how complicated the world is that even now as fully grown adults, we're real, we're still trying to figure stuff out and there's not always a clear cut rule for everything. Yeah, you know, I argue that detective novels are a form of comedy, right? Because they they move toward that ultimate resolution. But this one almost reads much more like a tragedy, you know, where the definition of tragedy is that Mm. some character makes a choice 
And that unleashes, just unleashes these forces that carry them up. And the whole story is moving toward the resolution of this force, but it's much less about the choices at that point. You're just, it's just, it's going to play out. The world will right itself and it's going to knock over whoever it's going to knock over, but it'll right itself. Yeah. You know, I'm about to go on a total, like, riff tangent here because I mentioned last week that I've been reading a lot of the Romans. The Romans have this view that our morality ought to conform to nature, what is natural. In, in, in reading Cicero, over and over, he refers to, you know, doing the right thing is doing what is the natural thing. And, and I, I had a big conversation with my students, like, what exactly does he mean? Like, what is natural? Like, where do we get that? And part of me really resonates with what Cicero is saying. There is something, there is this sort of like shape to human life that kind of conforms to the shape of the universe and almost like a person who um, is a habitual liar, like gravity, eventually will be found out, you know. But there's another part of me that reads, gosh, can we, can we really say that all of our ethical um, convictions, especially as Christians, um, grow naturally from the, the natural order of the world. For example, doesn't it seem to you guys that um, seeking one's own profit and betterment and wealth is more natural than, let's say, giving to other people, giving my financial resources away to other people? Is that just me? Am I making it overly simplistic? No, you're Isn't right. That's, no, you're absolutely right. Like I think all the time word? about how counterintuitive so much of Christianity is, right? Uh-huh. Put yourself last to be first, right? Yes, you know, right. So it just runs so counterintuitive to us. But then I also agree with the other thing you're saying, that there there is yeah. sort of a natural pattern to reality that we have to conform ourselves to. So, yeah, the same thing. And just as you were talking, I thought, and there's this sense in which what could be more natural than for Tallboy to want to provide for his wife and child? I know, just right. Feel that Absolutely. pressure. Feel that pressure Absolutely. and be compromised by it. And, and there's a tension, even in Christian theology, there's a tension between um, the Christian ethics as articulated by by Jesus. Our Christian ethics, do they conform with kind of like the natural order or natural law? Can you make a natural law case for Jesus's teachings? Well, in some cases, yes, absolutely. But man, so much of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, like the centerpiece of the Gospels, <laughs> it is really hard to make a case that Jesus is making natural law arguments. Right? Like no, all totally. Are about the rewards that will be given to people that do not practice kind of worldly, natural, worldly ethics. Right. The whole thing is about you who are not noticed. You who are, you know, yes, right. not not the ones revered in the, in the in the eyes of the world. God sees you and he will reward you because mm-hmm. you're doing mm-hmm. the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel that same tension. Absolutely. 
Right. David, I hope you're there. <laughs> I'm here. You guys are okay. just going. I was just like worried as one of those long moments where Tim and I go off and there's no recording and then we have to try to redo <laughs> the whole thing. I'm like, I can't remember anything we just said, but I sure hope this is recording. <laughs> now I'm here. You guys were just going. I'm not going to interrupt. <clears throat> um, so we have gone for 40 minutes. Um, we probably have about 20 minutes left. How many and questions did we get to? We've, we've done two so far. Oh, uh, wow. But we've done the, we spent like the last 30 minutes on one of them on the second one. Um, so um, I want to touch on this other one and then give you guys each a chance to have offer some final thoughts uh, before we get off for this week and then talk about the answer people's questions next week. Um, this is going to be an abrupt change, I suppose, given the last 10 minutes of conversation. But it's interesting. Now, this might be that I haven't read a lot of the other peter whimsy books but in this book does he actually do a good job as a detective huh <laughs> i like that question i like that because by his own admission he's careless multiple times he gets distracted he gets confused there's multiple times where he's like wait what um he falls in love with his trade advertising yeah and so like it makes me he goes think, too deep undercover right <laughs> was he in this book yeah. is he actually a good detective mm. that um, is a great question given this is a detective book um and he is kind it's... of one of the quintessential detectives of the era the golden age of mystery written by one of the quintessential authors i feel like it's a question worth contemplating Absolutely. briefly I, lo I love this question. All right, I'm going to jump right in here. So in so many ways, this is an atypical whimsy book. And I, I mean, yeah, and saying, I thought, I thought and so. And we've been, we've been saying that all along and, and, you know, various people have voiced their opinion that they wish that this was not their first introduction to, to Lord Peter. And, and, and maybe they're right. I mean, I, I like it because in one sense, it's kind of standalone and we could just talk about what I think are some super interesting themes and ideas and the whole, you know, in between the two world wars time period is very fascinating to me. And I just I like what Sayers contributes to that conversation. And that's, and that's why we chose it. Right. And so that's what appeals to me about this book. I certainly I, it doesn't appeal to me as a Lord Peter Whimsy book, you know, because really mm. there isn't very much we don't we see so much of of uh, death Brayden. We don't really see that much of Lord Peter and we don't yeah. even see him sleuthing that much. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, he does, he does put it all together and then he gives it to Parker to sort of tidy up. Right. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of sleuthing going on. He kind of unravels it pretty, pretty quickly. Right. He figures out what the murder weapon was and he just, yeah, it's just it's very atypical. So I don't know, and, and maybe that's sort of the point too. He he gets he's he's a little more chaotic in this book as well. There's just a lot of chaos. You know, it's not neat and tidy. Yeah, and he the only time and, that I remember him doing something that was like appropriately sleuthy is when he, <laughs> with the help of Parker, kind of figure out the little code being used in the telephone books. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 I mean, do you guys remember another moment where you're just like, oh, Lord Peter, I would never have seen that. But thanks to your ingenuity and insight, <laughs> you were the sleuth of the century. That's it. Didn't maybe, happen much in this maybe book, Maybe right? you could say the stuff where he figures out the catapult thing. But right. Like that. Yeah. Yes. Now, when he picks up the uh, the beetle, the scabbard or whatever, not a scabbard. Yes. 
it's not, but you know what I'm talking about. When he, when he picks that up and, and he, he figures scabbard, out that it, right? yeah, I thought it was a scabbard. Why am I thinking yeah. that's, that's holding a sword? I don't know. Um, but when he picks that up and says, oh, I think we're meant to think this fell out of his pocket, but I think this might be the murder weapon. I mean, that was sleuthing. I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That, it, that was sleuthing. Um, you know, and, and, and Lord Peter's sleuthing in the other books is very, it's, it's very sparse. I mean, he's not Sherlock Holmes. He's, he, he, he has lots of people that work for him and he's sort of the brains behind the whole thing, but he sends people out, you know, to sort of flat footed around and, and and, he has lots of ginger Joe's. He has lots of ginger (laughs) Joe's miss Clemson and her team of, uh, spinsters who were made spinsters um either widows or spinsters because of world war one and then he mm. he so he employs them and they're as as secretaries throughout the city and they're his ears and eyes uh all over the city so he's got this army of women and uh of course lord peter i mean uh, um uh parker uh and and him and i mean i don't know i can't even think of one where he does like a classic sherlock holmes thing Bits and pieces here and there, but there's a lot of it's, he's very chatty. The books are very chatty, you know. It is, yeah. And yeah, he's he very, is very chatty. he is very he is messy a lot, and he's very flippant about the whole thing too, you know. But it, it's a facade because he's he, he you know he's observing everything. I was so glad that Bunter at least made a, like a half-hearted appearance in the book. <laughs> <laughs> you got to sort of see Bunter. Yeah. So I so that's my answer there. That I yeah. There you go, Tim. Your turn. Wait, why did you conclude? What did I conclude? <laughs> and he's he's kind of chaotic here too. It's just the whole thing's chaos, right? Yeah. He does do some sleuthing. It's I, gosh, I would have to like reread all of them to be able to 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 give an informed opinion about how how different he is uh, in this book as opposed to others. But we just don't see very much of him as Lord Peter in this book because he's being the other guy so much. Yeah. Right, yeah. Tim. What about you? Good detective. Uh. Okay. Let me put it this I, way: Could this have been solved? I mean, it probably couldn't have been solved without him, right? I agree with that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, does that by itself mean that he was a good detective? I don't. Or I, do his it, foibles along the way make you think? I mean, you kind of solved it despite yourself. <laughs> oh, no, I definitely don't think that. I think that would be overstating it. I think he does really well undercover. Yeah, he does. He plays the role very well of the of Pim's publicity copywriter. I love the whole idea, too, that I can't be too good a cricketer. I'm going to give myself away, but I can't be too bad because I talk some smack in the office. Yeah. So I got to be kind right. of good, but not too good. And then in the end, he gets carried away and blows his cover. Yes, yeah, he his does. Pride, right. His pride. That was such a, that was just, that was a touch of realism, I thought, you know, like, oh, I got hit now. Now you're done for. Here I come. <laughs> I think for me, I'm having a hard time not comparing him to Sherlock Holmes just because Sherlock Holmes is so... There's nothing in common. But you know what I mean? Like that he's Sherlock Holmes is the paradigmatic example of a detective at work, of of someone who knows how to sleuth. And you're right, that's not who she 
No, he doesn't like interview people and collect clues. You don't see him back at his right. apartment, like thinking out loud and putting it together. Every Lord Peter is all like having a, a thousand charming, flippant, apparently meaningless conversations, and all is being revealed in those meaningless conversations because he's brilliantly mm-hmm. drawing it out. It's much more like that. So he's yeah. just, you know, he's being entertaining, and you don't really even realize everything that he's doing. He never, he never says, elementary, my dear Bunter, this is the, we've solved it by, by Jove. You know, that doesn't happen. <laughs> by Jove. <laughs> He's you know much what, more birdie you know whispering his way through it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say that Holmes, Sherlock Holmes is much more, um, like he's probably on the spectrum, right? Oh, yeah. He's probably on the spectrum there. He, it's, it's, he's so bad with interpersonal relationships and he's so good at just seeing the kind of data points and the patterns in those data points. And our guy, Whimsy is almost the exact, not the exact opposite, but he's, he's not on the spectrum. He's not autistic. He's a social creature and he does most of his best work through the social aspect of that job. Hmm. And that's thus, I suppose, it makes sense that he would be drawn, that he would kind of get swept away by his cover, that particular cover, the advert, the world of advertising. Yes, because he's inhabiting that social role so deeply and that he could get swept away in it. In a world, in a world, in, you know, that is inherently social, like it's about communication, and, and yeah. in, like there is all this um, back and forth going on among the the people that work there and all that kind of stuff, and he appreciates that and likes to take part in it, and people and people there like him. Or dislike him, but I think he probably appreciates both of those. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it, it's it's very appropriate that he can take so much sympathy, that he can have so much sympathy for Tallboy at the end. Whereas, is Holmes ever going to have sympathy with yeah, Tallboy? Yeah, I was just thinking Never. that. Never. Never. Because Tallboy is the one who kind of created the chaos in the system, and and now Holmes is there to put it back right, and that's where the satisfaction is. Whereas with Whimsy, I mean, I was laughing at the uh, the chapter where Tallboy comes forward and confesses. I was just laughing at – it was such a – Whimsy has so much sympathy. Ah, yes, old boy. We, we know it's a mighty pickle you've gotten yourself in. You know, he's, he's got so much sympathy for the guy. And I appreciate that about, about Whimsy. And it's the antithesis of, of Holmes. And, and so what do we make of tall boy? Like, is this an act of courage at the end or is it an act of cowardice? I, I feel like our society is so confused. I'm not saying I have the answer, mind you, but we're very confused on this question. And, uh, of course, in the ancient world, there was no confusion, right? As far as the Romans would be, be concerned, that was an act of courage by tall boy at the end. That was the honorable mm. thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. And it's being portrayed, I think, that way. I think it is, too. Yeah, I think it is, too. David, what do you think of Tallboy? That's a very general question. I mean, honestly, my gut clinched when I realized what Whimsy was suggesting to Tallboy. And then Tallboy says, okay, walk home slowly. Yeah. And don't turn around. Like, that's it. I guess I can't even imagine having the courage to walk out that door like that. Yeah. Maybe he just got swept back up into it and they convinced him to uh, join again. He's a gang leader in South Africa somewhere or South America. I'm looking for that. Um... He faked his own death. We're going to have a sequel later. 
from the right. wi- from the window, Whimsy, Whimsy watched him come out into Piccadilly and walk quickly de- away towards Hyde Park Corner. He saw the shadow slip from a neighboring doorway and follow him. And from thence to the place of execution, and may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. And then end section, and then a telephone rings a half hour later, kind of breaking him out of his contemplative reverie, you would think. The idea of the shadow slipping from the neighboring doorway is really well done. Um, not He doesn't say, like, mm. the the gangster or the, you know, whatever word you could use, oh, the, yeah, the assassin. Yeah, yeah. He, he refers to the, she refers to the, uh, the executioner, I suppose, as the shadow that slips from the doorway and follows him. And, of course, that's kind of a trope within mystery stories, the idea of the killer in the doorway, the watcher in the doorway. You constantly have to be kind of waiting for him and watching him and uh, aware of mm-hmm. him. And and here, the man walks instead of trying to run away from it. He kind of walks towards it, towards the shadow right. in the doorway. Right. Right. And then you and get. I think that. Well, then you get the end of the section, really nicely done. And then she has the phone ring, which you can kind of you can imagine that bringing him out. And it's Parker with good news, bringing him out of his thoughts for a half hour about what is definitely has just happened to to right. this person who he sympathizes with. Um. And clearly, it seems like in ta- in his mind, there is a, that he's he's there's both justice. There's justice in multiple ways. Like there's justice in the sense that he's going to get what's coming to him, but he's also going to be able to be honorable in how he receives that. Tall, yeah, tall boy, that is. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense in which his death is sort of self-sacrificial because he doesn't take down his family and Pims with him and all those people. Yeah. There's a note of redemption about yes. that in a, in a small in some small way yes yes and, and the whole idea of the shadow following out you know, I, I feel like that fits this theme too that he's he's just there's just forces that he's swept up in right things have been mm-hmm. unleashed and he's getting swept up in them and now it's writing itself so the shadow is also sort of the darkness right that he's gotten involved in and finally it it, it encompasses him and engulfs him just like everybody else. Because you wonder, right, yeah. why does why does why does Dion why does Dion, Dion since Brandon's been busting my chops on Facebook about saying that the French way, so you know, why does Dion have to die? Right, Diane de Montmorey. Why I mean, why does she have to die? She's nobody, she's not a player, it's just collateral damage, right? That's what happens. Everybody's gotta go. In the end they all turn on each other in a tragedy, right? At the end of a tragedy everyone's dead. Yeah. Right. Well, except there's a wedding at the end of this book. Just there as, is. And, and just so it, it is as, a comedy. It's a comedy, yeah. right. It's a comedy. Um, well, um, I, I love that metaphor she uses there because I think it fits throughout the whole book. But it's like that idea of the shadow and all that. And that just that one little sequence there, what she does, this is what we were just pointing out, is what the difference is between a really good writer and like a standard writer, right? Like that's what a great writer does. That's why it's worth reading something closely because those are the things that – the metaphors, the pictures, the the, the 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 sort of narrative storytelling that takes a novel from being interesting to being kind of um, to to being a great book, right? And, and I don't necessarily mean great book, capital G, capital B, but it mm-hmm. makes it something. It makes it sort of transcendent, right? Like the moment you read that, there's a you kind of like have the chills, right? You like, that's a trend moment, of, a transcendent moment that happens when you read really good literature, and so that's where yeah. she is different than an ordinary writer. And it's those things that make a great writer, a great writer. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's my final thought for this book. Do you, either of you have final thoughts before we head out? I don't want to capital. I don't want to trump that David. I think that's a, it's a wonderful thought for me to close on also. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess my, I guess my only thought, which is not as profound as what David just said is that (laughs) I've, I've read these over the years, just for, just for straight up fun. This is actually the first time I've ever like, spoken about them in this sort of context of trying to unpack it from a literary standpoint. I mean, I've always been aware that there's a lot going on, but I didn't stop and think about it and articulate it. So this was this was fun, and it was fun to see that the book held up. It held up just as I thought it would, mm. more well, so in some respects. Yeah. And great literature can be fun, too. Fun literature can be great. I think that's Absolutely. A, it's a good reminder. Absolutely. And it's a good reminder. Go ahead. I'm just really glad we, we covered her. You know, Dorothy Sayers can, I think, be forgotten yeah. with the Lewis and Tolkien world. But she she's right up there with them. I mean, she's doing the same things, right? The essays, the Christian apologies, the fiction. She's, she's thinking all the great thoughts, too. She, she's well worth uh, honoring and paying attention to, I think. Yeah. Okay, indeed. Yeah. Well, those of you who are Sayers, 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 lovers, um, uh, if, if you have <laughs> not been... Sayers. If, <laughs> If you if you hadn't been listening to the show before and you joined because we talked about um, Dorothy Sayers, then thank you for joining us. We hope you'll continue. Um, f- uh, we're going to answer your questions next week on, on the next episode. So, again, send those questions in. But um, in two weeks, we're going to start on a new book, and I thought I would go ahead and give a little preview of, of what that's going oh, to good, be. Oh, good, good. So we are going to pick up a collection of short stories um, uh, as our next book. Um, it's going to kind of operate or sort of like a novel. So we are going to read Flannery O'Connor's collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. I think there's about eight stories in it. So that gives us kind of like an eight chapter, seven or eight chapters, essentially, something in that range. Um, and we'll just cover a chapter, you know, a story, an episode. And that'll give us a chance to really dig into what O'Connor's doing with each individual story, which, of course, she is a master short storyteller. And I think that'll be really fun. But also, um, hopefully it'll help those of you who maybe teach her or don't get her or didn't like her when you first read her. Hopefully um, our um, conversation, the questions we ask um, some of our, some of us are more enthusiastic about her than others, I think, but um, hopefully all that conversation will help, uh, help make her uh, approachable and, and fun to read. Um, as just, as I don't know. Can you use the word fun? No, can you, you use def- fun with Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> okay. In, your, in you, my opinion, you can use humor. No, in my funny sometimes. We'll have to talk about this because, in my opinion, if you're reading Flannery O'Connor and you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. All Um, right, I'm uh, so ready to be. I'm molded me, David. (laughs) I mean, I love Flannery O'Connor. I just don't know that I. I I'm not anti-Flannery by any means. I just, it's not. You know, I pick up Woodhouse and Sayers for fun reading. I'm never like, ooh, let's grab some Flannery O'Connor for the beach. Well, and I'm not saying that there's not more to it than that. It's not meant to be fun, but I think that she has a really deep sense of humor that that comes through. And it's not just like ironic humor. So um, we will go through we'll go through those kind of in order that the collection has. If you do not have that particular collection, the stories are also in her collected works. Uh, Many of them are available online, and they're certainly available at the library. So uh, we will say each week which one we're going to read. you know, for the next week so that if you don't have that collection, you know what to prepare for if you want to read along with us. Um, if you haven't, if you've already read them before and just want to join the conversation, we'd love for that as well. So um, Everything That Rises Must Converge by Flannery O'Connor. Um, and we will, I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that starting not, not next Monday, but the Monday after that. So that'll take us kind of through March, I think, and a little bit into April. Um, 
so I guess that's it for uh, for these chapters of um, Murder Must Advertised. And next week we'll talk about your questions. So, um, Angelina and Tim, this has been a good conversation. Thanks for joining me, yeah. guys. Thanks. No, this was great. Thank you, David. Thanks a lot. Uh, for Tim McIntosh, for Angelina Stanford. Wait, let me do that again. For the inimitable Thank Tim you. McIntosh and for the... Uh, what did I say about you, Angelina? For the, the one and only? For the one and... Yeah, for the one the and one only. only. I'm sure that's what it was. <laughs> for the inimitable Tim McIntosh and for the one and only Angelina Stanford, I am David Kern. Saying farewell here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.